Hello, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. This week, we're going to Mudgee in the New South Wales Central West. If you wind up out that way, make sure you go to the Drip Gorge. Take the track from the car park and follow the Goulburn River downstream and you'll find soaring sandstone escarpments, almost pink in some light. The drip itself overhangs the river and it gets its name from the constant trickle of water which runs down its side. It's a shady oasis and can be 15 degrees cooler in the summer than only a few hundred metres away. The drip was added to the Goulburn River National Park a couple of years ago. But some locals are anxious that the nearby Malabin coal mine and its plans for expansion could damage the cliffs, impact the water table, and render this unique and beloved spot too dangerous to visit. For them, that would be a tragedy, a sad ending to a story many thousands of years old. A group campaigning to save the drip has been fighting for years, and the women on the front line took me on a tour. Before we got walking, the five of us sat in the picnic area. It's a lovely 22-degree spring day and the car park is nearly full. I'm Dr Julia Imri, so uh, I'm a local as well as have uh, carried out a fair bit of research on the, uh, the Golden River from the point of view of ground and surface water. Julia is a hydrologist. She recently wrote her PhD on the drip and the Golden River, but her relationship with the area goes back a long way. You're from around here originally? Yeah, I have a property further down river actually. We're back on to the other end of the, the drip, our property. I moved up here in the 19, late 1970s and loved the area so much I'm still here. But since then I've done a lot of study, you know, university. Because of the interest that this place has, it's such a, a fascinating geology, fascinating water system. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the mining, which has come in since the 80s, mid-80s. Uh, so that sort of spurred my research further <laughs> in order to understand those impacts. Hi, I'm Phyllis Settle and I'm very much a local and um, I'm currently the chairperson of Mudgee Environment Group. Phyllis is barely five foot, walks with a cane. She wasn't originally going to join us today and was planning to step back from the campaign she's led for so many years. But she felt she had to come. Well, I came here about 30-something years ago um, with my grandchildren and my daughter and there wasn't even a walking track that was usable. So we walked all the way to the drip in the river, which was quite a feat. And we loved it so much we came back again and did it again and over the years and that's what we've done and now I'm bringing my great-grandchildren here. So we've got generations who keep coming back. She tells us about a trip she took, 12 months around the whole of Australia. I came back and people said, what was the most beautiful place that you saw? And I said, the drip. (laughs) (laughs) Right in my own backyard. It is lovely. I'm Alicia Lonza, a Wiradjuri woman from Mudgee and chairperson of the Mudgee Local Aboriginal Land Council. Have you always lived around here? Yeah, yeah. I'm born and bred, so my family's from here on my grandmother's line. Um, And so... Generations of our family have always come here and so we were brought up coming here and there was no walking track then even when I was a kid so it was walking up the river. Um, but then my grandparents were involved in you know, working on the original track with other people in the community and, and, and now as a land council you know, we've worked in, with national parks um, you know, and community groups in terms of looking after the area and trying to protect the area. The area where we're sitting, about a K from the drip, was recently handed back to state control by the nearby Malabin coal mine, owned by Chinese company Yankol. 
In 2010, the company had paid a little over $2,000 for 700 hectares of land in a secret lease conversion sale under the state's last Labor government. When the deal became public a few years later, the people sitting around me were outraged. You'd think that with the site's protection as a state conservation area, it would create a buffer zone around the drip and the gorge would finally be safe. But that's not how Julia sees it. From the point of view of, I suppose, its title, they created a state conservation area, the government did, in order to allow mining to proceed in areas that they obviously were of significance conservation-wise. And what has happened here is that this has been declared a state conservation area due to the mining that is going to be coming. We're already approved within 170 metres from where we are now, underground mining, and also there is plans to tunnel under the river and mine to the north. So this is one of our disappointments, I suppose. That you see, a state conservation area only protects the surface and a short distance beneath it. A national park, however, would protect this area right to the centre of the earth. This crucial distinction is what's making lovers of the drip nervous, particularly when you take into account the possibility that Yan Coal will tunnel under the Goulburn River State Conservation Area to mine on the north side. There's also planning approval to mine within 500 metres of the river on the south side, which should get going in the next few years. Yan Coal says there's no planning approval for the tunnels needed to facilitate mining on the north side of the river, and argues that all previous approvals had been rigorously assessed by relevant state and Commonwealth authorities, as well as the Independent Assessment Panel. There's also a provision in Yankol's planning approval that there must be nil impacts on the drip. But Julia isn't convinced the mine is doing enough to make that happen, and suggests that as long as the site is a state conservation area and not a national park, there remains the threat of tunnelling under the river. She says any mining activity near the drip could damage the delicate sandstone cliffs. Due to subsidence and so forth, we could have cliff falls. So this is a sandstone country which is quite fragile, and you can see as you walk down, there's this a tendency in, to have this sort of vertical cracking. They call it vertical jointing, which creates beautiful cliff lines, but also makes it slightly. You know, if, if the ground moves too much, obviously you've got any sort of instability. There's a danger there. And according to Phyllis, the decades of mining that have taken place in the area have already had an impact. The subtle impacts have been gradually increasing as it's come closer and as the mining has become a larger enterprise than what it used to be. A couple of years ago, I had a phone call from a local photographer. She'd come down here. She lived just across the river in her childhood. She came down here with her child to have a paddle in the river. It was New Year's Day. She didn't expect there'd be much water in the river, but at least he could play in the river. And there was no water whatsoever. And being a photographer, she just snapped a photo of him with this total look of despair and unhappiness that what's happened to my precious river? I haven't got any water to play in. And it was an example for us to be able to show the public that during the times of drought and the effect of mining, depleting the water to the river, was so obvious because then a little while later when we complained to the mines and said, well, you're supposed to be releasing water into the river, what's happened to that water? They then, from their desalination plant, released water and where there was water in the river. 
I'm happy to go for a walk now. Yeah. Um, I, that was, that was, unless there's anything you thought I must ask before we go down there. <laughs> I will certainly think it's up. Yeah, <laughs> it's time to get walking. I'm beginning to get a sense of the history of this place and the lives of the people up and down the river. The bushland is gorgeous. Alicia tells me more. So I guess over the years, an Aboriginal corporation in town, Morongalinga, and the Land Council have worked with national parks generally to do weeds, erosion work, the walking track, plant native species. So yeah, just working on country, looking after country generally is what we've been doing, yeah. You're doing a wonderful job. A wonderful <laughs> job, yes. Looks fantastic. The track follows the base of the sandstone cliff. A little way to our right is the river. At this point in its course, it runs over sand and is quite shallow. Julia guides school groups up and down the track and is about the best person in the world to take me on a tour. According to Phyllis, that breeze you can probably hear is not usually around in spring. Yeah, but that's, I think the thing is, the second you get a microphone out, the breeze will, the breeze will come. Yeah. She reckons it might be the ancestors kicking up a fuss because she's brought a man to a woman's place. But more on that later. Perhaps, yeah. We're walking and chatting for about half an hour before Julia takes us off the track and across the river. So, in the 1970s, Brett Whiteley and his friends with Wendy came down here to do some paintings. Yeah. Uh, they wandered down the river looking for the drip. They thought this was the drip because there was a few drips coming down. <laughs> so they set up camp and there was a lovely, the river was out here then and there was a lovely sandbar there. And, um, <laughs> and Brett, who's a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a showman, uh, he was painting on canvases, um, then turned around, stripped off naked and decided he'd go a little bit natural. And uh, well, natural and he painted these here. These are the famous and somewhat controversial Brett Whiteley murals painted in the early 1970s. They're an appropriation of indigenous bark paintings found in the Northern Territory. Interestingly, they're the types of images associated with women's spaces, just like the drip. So that's sort of 50 years they have survived. These, um, he, he would have used just acrylic paints, and, uh, and when you get closely, you can see that the lichen is, has replaced some of those paints with lichen. So, um, but you've got there's a bit of a birthing mother. I don't know if you birthing figure. I don't know if you can see that with a separated red head, but two breasts and, and a, what looks like something in a belly and, and so forth. There's a nala nala. There's a few baskets, emu and the egg. It's interesting yeah. that he picked up on this as a woman's place. It is, well. isn't it? Yeah, it is. This is one of the, the interesting things about this site. And I was told by an Aboriginal woman, actually Alicia's um, one of her sisters, that that was where the, um, the men stood. So up on this cliff yeah, about 100 metres above us. Yeah, that was that. The pagoda, yeah. And the women were down here in the birthing cave. But I'm not 100% sure how accurate that is, but it's a nice story. Yeah. <laughs> I said the paintings were controversial because for many years... People assumed they were genuine Indigenous artworks. It was only revealed a few years ago who the actual artist was. I asked Alicia what she makes of them. I don't know, like at the time when the, you know, the film sort of came up and there was an art exhibition on at the time from local artists created work about the drip and sort of that question was put to us, like are you, you know, are you angry with him or do you think it should be removed? And I guess it's like anything, do we think the track should be removed? Do we think the bridge and the sign should be removed? Like, I guess in some ways... We'd rather it's not there, but it is there, and I guess it's a part of the story of this place. So I think we've got to... For us, we recognise that there are lots of river stories that are important to people in regards to this area, you know, and whether that's 
to do with the, you know, when they used to come down and have picnics in the 1800s and whatever and, you know, or whether it's the bikey groups that used to come here and use the place or whether it's, you know, school groups that have come out. Like, everyone has a different... Um, they're different stories for this place. And so we kind of want to be respectful to everyone else's stories as well. But, yeah, so, I mean, ideally, it's it's not ideal, it's there. It's there. Same as the rock art up there, we regard that as, you know, being, I guess, a form of vandalism as well. Um, but generally, overall, people are very respectful when they're out here. Mm. And, and they're coming here because they want to see the place and... Um, yeah, they're very respectful generally in their interactions with the area. The Indigenous heritage of this place goes back thousands of years. There are hand paintings only a few kilometres away, and Wiradjuri women have been coming here a long time. But the Indigenous name for this place has been lost, a casualty of the greater destruction of a people and culture. And in terms of uh, so the fact that so the name itself was lost, that's yeah. quite... That, I mean, that tells you quite a lot, doesn't yeah. it, I guess, about... Yeah, but like, we were... Um, very heavily impacted by invasions. So there were a lot of massacres in our area. Um, people were put on missions and reserves, sent up to Bree and Wellington. So there was only a small community which remained on country and then married in with non-Aboriginal people. So we're, even now we're still a small community compared to, to other areas. So it was um, very hard-hitting um, dispossession. And so that included loss of land, loss of language, loss of cultural knowledge. But, you know, it hasn't all been lost people did retain cultural knowledge and so that's this is one of the places where women have continued that that practice of culture so do you know what people would be looking for when they come down here you know your ancestors i guess so does it, this is obviously a perennial stream so that's crucial super important during the drought but yeah I, but i is there more to it than that I... yeah so they were coming here so as i said it's part of women's business but they were coming here for purpose for an, for a reason yeah and it was to carry out business so yeah, yeah. generally don't we don't go into what that is but um yeah they were coming here for purpose and it was leading on from other places so they were at other sites in preparation for coming here first we keep walking at some point just before the drip we cross an invisible border from the state conservation area into the goulburn river national park we go a bit quiet as we near the gorge and walk up a set of sandstone stairs to the lookout Yeah. Almost. Almost. Yeah, so this is the drip. Uh, the great dripping wall or there's a yes, it's a, the closest long wall for instance from the point of view of mine is probably about five hundred metres away. Uh, further downstream there's corner gorge. It hasn't rained much recently, but you can still hear that telltale drip of water sliding off the sandstone overhang and slapping on the rocks and water underneath. It's not hard to see why these women have dedicated their lives to saving the drip. For them, it won't be safe until the mines are kept back and the state conservation area is converted to a national park. But the mines aren't going anywhere anytime soon. I asked the group if there's any way to ensure that the heritage value of an area is maintained, while also maintaining any economic benefits a mine can have on a region and the country. Julia says she doesn't trust the mines modelling. They can't prove how they're going to achieve their nil impacts. And you ask them and they say, well, you know, they've, they've got monitoring balls in. Well, they've got, I think, two near the river here. There's a few more scattered further down. And that is the extent of their groundwater monitoring to date. They've already got evidence in their um, underground mining to the Eulen and in Malabin that they're having a drawdown effect on groundwater up to two kilometres away from the, from the long wall 
from the front of the long wall, the active face of the long wall. So, you know, even coming within 500 metres here, you're going to have a, uh, an impact on the, on the groundwater that would normally make it to the river. Alicia is concerned about the health of the bush around here. You know, we're part of a, a renewables energy resource zone, so there's going to be a lot of activity in that area. So I think that's really the way forward. You know, and from our perspective, it shouldn't be the imbalance where the priority of economic benefit and, you know, the benefits of coal mining outweighing community benefits, cultural values, all those sorts of values are, it's very skewed. In, so, in favour of coal mining? In favour of coal mining. mining. Yeah. It's like I'm yeah. yet to see where our cultural values or scientific values or community values, what does it take to outweigh a coal mine? Because I haven't seen it. I'm 40 and I haven't seen that in my lifetime. What does it actually take? Coal mining's at its day and there should be a move towards renewables. It's time for me to leave the drip. I have a meeting in Mudgee. But before I go, I notice Phyllis sitting on a rock on her own, drinking in the scene. She's at home here, completely. Mudgee is thriving. The drive-in along the Yulin Road takes you through rolling, bright green farmland which turns into vineyards as you get closer to town. The main street, Market Street, is bustling. Businesses are packed with people from Sydney and the East Coast, contributing to a lively atmosphere. The town has an historic centre. There's a string of buildings more than a century old. Much of the town's wealth was based on the ultra-fine merino wool trade, but now the invisible benefactor is mining, coal mining to be precise. I don't like it called a mining town at all. Um, in fact, the mines have been incredibly good to Mudgee. I'm Hugh Bateman, I'm a local businessman and philanthropist. Hugh's office is on Market Street, right on the corner. It's gorgeous, the floor is hardwood and the boardroom we sit in is lushly appointed. He was born in Mudgee, came off the land in the 1970s to sell real estate. In some ways he's emblematic of the town's success. One time around about 1978, I personally sold 13 houses in one weekend. And that's when things started to change for Mudgee as a result of the mines. It then had an, another reboost in the 90s as other mines came on. So it's been a bit of a, um, a ride for many. And we've seen new businesses arrive here and we've grown. It's that sort of thing that's created a more of a, a cosmopolitan feel to a, a historic area. He says mining has supported other industries in Mudgee as well. The mines have brought tourism. We're doing over 600,000 visits from people a year here now. And it's recognised that 92% of those people that visit us come back again. And I think a lot of that is attributed to people who've moved here to go to the mines from Queensland, from right around New South Wales and further afield. So they have their friends and family uh, come and visit them. And so it's something that's grown. I think Mudgee has its own historical ambience resting in the nest of the hills. And it's a very peaceful place and a great place. And in fact, I, I often make the comment, you go a long way in this great big world of ours to find a place like this. The concern amongst some of the people of this Save the Drip organisation, yeah. essentially that the... the expansion of the mine uh, may negatively impact the drip. And they were chiefly worried about, I guess, subsidence. So those sandstone cliffs are quite fragile. Do you, I guess, share concerns? Look, I think anybody would share a concern if something like that happened. 
I mean, national parks for be jumping on the bandwagon and so forth. But the mine themselves, I believe, cares. In fact, national parks and the local mines have, in more recent times, contributed to putting pathways, upgrading the pathways and so forth, as well as the local council with parking and so forth. So I think, broadly speaking, there would be a lot of concern right across the, the field in terms of maintaining its presence. I think in recent times, in the light of what occurred with Rio Tinto in Western Australia, I can't ever see that happening again because I think that there will be some huge fines. It's almost criminal what occurred in Western Australia. And I really don't think it would happen from that point of view here. I do know there is a caring responsibility from their point of view from talking to people over time. Like many in Mudgee and the surrounding area, Hugh is a regular visitor to the Drip. Personally, I think it's a place of tranquility. It's, it's a, a real place of, of difference, particularly in our area. Sort of thing that you may find on the coast on occasions, but it's extremely rare for us. And if you go there after rain, it is just the most magnificent place because you have the rain drops coming off the top of the, the stone onto the little creek that runs below. And, it's, and, then, and the greenness, if you go through there in the spring, if you get the opportunity, you should go and have a look because it's just absolutely beautiful. But while Hugh has seen his town benefit from the mines over the years and has seen a lot of personal success as a result, he knows that the coal under the soil about a half an hour to the north is a finite resource. We have to be acutely aware of life after the mines, so we have to create that through business and industry in the area. We have a very diversified business and industry here now, but there is a reliance on the mines and we have to spread that. I'd really love to see more tertiary in education here, uh, perhaps an extension of one of the universities. I'd like to see more technology operating from here. And of course, with COVID, what we're seeing now is a lot of people are working from home and are realising that they can do just as much in regional New South Wales as they can in Sydney. And of course, they've got a lovely big backyard and sort of been locked up in a one or two bedroom unit. The drip would be a key part of Mudgee's tourist draw card, but the mines do have life left in them and will be around for at least the next decade. I ask you if he sees a tension there between the value of our natural heritage and the economic benefits of industry. I don't know if there's a tension there. Certainly for those who are involved in Indigenous and, and uh, community and people who are close to it from the environmental would be certainly tense, I would imagine, because there is a knowledge that a mining company is, is near it. That's always going to be. And the balance of, of money over, over heritage. Personally, uh, I think heritage comes first. But on the balance of things, I don't know if it'll ever get that far. Unlike the women I walked with at the drip, Hugh is confident in the mines. He's seen his town prosper. We get to talking about the proposed tunnels underneath the Goulburn River just west of the drip and the concern that any underground activity could cause the sandstone cliffs serious damage. But Hugh believes the mining company knows what it's doing. I think mining companies will know the limit. And I think with technology, if the they were to go under the drip, I would hope that modern technology would provide that that sort of thing didn't occur. It'd have to. And I would say that, you know, if there was a subsidence of any sort, 
as a result of something like that happening would be disastrous. Back at the drip, I sense that Phyllis is contemplating that same thought. This is her place, as much as anyone's. But despite the years-long effort, they're still not satisfied, and they can't fight forever. So you've obviously you fought for quite a while, and you know had wins in that period, and not set, many. setbacks, and not know, many wins, battles lost and won. Does it, does it make you worried about what happens? Yes, very worried. Uh, do what I can do. We all do what we can do. Um, I try to look at the big picture and try to do a variety of different actions. We got a local artist to put together a book. We engage with local children to draw pictures, gather plants and dress them, um, write little things, you know, about why they love the drip. And this artist put it all together into a beautiful book that was handmade cover, and that was presented to the Premier at the time, and I can't remember which one, (laughs) in Parliament, um, presented to them with the 10,000 signature petition to save the drip. So the approval system is where it all falls apart. It always just gets rubber stamped. We go to those and we present papers and we, we speak and we have protests outside. What has it achieved, Julia? Well, we've it over the years. Like, yeah. uh, I think around Lithgow is an example of what happens when um, there's no one there to speak up. Yeah. And there's now people there that are speaking up. And yeah. they've had a lot of damage, you know, to the groundwater systems and so forth around there. But, um, you can only hope, you know, and you don't have a lot of choice, really. You know, what do you do? Do you just sort of accept it or, or move away, you know, which, uh, you know, I moved up straight after school and, you know, loved the place so much, stayed. <laughs> On the surface, the drip is safe. The gorge itself is inside a national park and the Aboriginal Land Council and National Parks and Wildlife are working hard to maintain the track and bush around it for us all to enjoy. For the people who have fought to keep it safe, however, the threat of the mine still hangs heavy. Hugh is hoping for a bright future for Mudgee, in a world less dependent on coal mining, and Julia, Phyllis, Alicia and many others want to ensure the drip is a part of that future. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Everyone has a story to tell. If you'd like to share yours, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Voice of Real Australia. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. 
Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. Special thanks this week go to Matthew Kelly. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>